Welcome to Feminarratives. You're listening to episode two. I'm Ashley. I'm Hannah. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Feminarratives Podcast and on Twitter at Fem Podcast. Check out our website at feminarrativespodc.wixsite.com slash my site. That's Wix, W-I-X. We have all of our show notes, pictures, source material, contact form. Plus just info about us. Yeah. Get to know us a little bit. Check it out. Right now we are available on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. We have one You're listener. welcome, Kevin. Hi, Dad. We have an Anchor page that's our main publishing format, which is just Anchor FM. Search for Feminarity's Podcast. All right. All right. So it's my turn this week. It is. I'm going to be leading. Uh, before we get into it, I want to talk really quickly about our format. So Hannah and I want to be able to cover a wide range of feminist topics, which mm-hmm. means discussing gender equality in all its forms. So Hannah's episodes are going to focus on more traditional feminism, whereas mine are going to be more centered around LGBTQ folks, ranging from biographical episodes on badass queer women to topics that affect the community more as a whole, which is what this week is going to be. You can't see it because this is an audio format, but I am nodding in agreement. (laughs) So this week we are still on COVID quarantine. (laughs) We've been here for like four weeks now. We have. I think I've left the house like maybe a total of five times in the past four weeks. Grocery shopped. I know a lot about our local pick and save. If the weather could consistently be above 60 degrees so I can go for walks on a daily (laughs) basis, that would be great. Anyway, in the vein of epidemics, I am going to be talking about HIV AIDS. So I'm going to start with just sort of some baseline information. So for anybody who doesn't know, HIV stands for human immunodeficiency virus. It is transmitted most commonly through blood and sexual fluids via uh, sexual intercourse or the sharing of needles or syringes. It can also be transmitted from a birth giver to child during pregnancy, birth, or breastfeeding, although that is less common and modern medicine has done a lot to prevent that in recent years. And the human body currently can't get rid of HIV entirely, even with treatment, but treatment can get it down to a manageable level, which I'll talk about a little bit more later. So if somebody is diagnosed with HIV, there are two levels that are monitored. There is the viral load, which is the amount of HIV's genetic material that is in a blood sample. Typically, it describes the number of copies of HIV's RNA in a milliliter of blood. So 100,000 is considered high, 10,000 is considered low, and there's a direct correlation between a viral load and the likelihood of transmitting the virus to someone else. All viral load tests have a limit of detection, below which they can't reliably detect HIV in the blood. It's usually somewhere between 20 and 200, but at that point the virus is considered undetectable, and below 200, studies have shown that you cannot transmit HIV sexually. Oh, that's interesting. Typically, if it's caught early enough and if somebody's body is receptive to treatment, it's pretty manageable to get HIV below that 200 point and keep it there. And then at that point, most people can live like a fairly normal, healthy life. Okay. So the other level that's closely monitored is the level of T-cells in the blood, which is typically described as a CD4 count, which our lovely friend Kenton uh, kind of explained to me, but I am not in the medical field and uh, do not feel comfortable trying to l- relay that information. But just know when I talk about CD4 count, I am referring to T-cells, and it is the number of T-cells in a cubic millimeter of blood. 
Anywhere between 500 and 1500 is considered healthy, and then below 200 is at high risk for, of developing serious illness. I don't know why, but the phrase like cubic anything makes me picture, you know how they say you can you hammer out like a gram of gold to be the size of a tennis court? Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, I pictured like <laughs> like a drop of blood on a tennis court and then like... <laughs> Someone in a lab coat just looking at like <laughs> I know that that is not what happens. <laughs> Scientifically but speaking. That is where my brain went. Yeah. We didn't give a new mic shout out. Yeah. We have a new mic. We have a new mic. Thanks, Kenton. Thanks, Kenny. Kenton is my lovely partner who has provided us with a lo- equally lovely mic. He did. It's a decent upgrade because we were using a for free mic. I mean, this one's also for free for us, but... Yeah. The the other one uh, cost its original owner... Five dollars. Five dollars. <laughs> including the, the arm that it's attached and to. the other one is for recording fancy tuba playing. <laughs> anyway. Um, okay, so how HIV works is the virus attacks T-cells, and people with a higher viral load will see a more rapid decline in their CD4 count. Okay. Typically, people will progress through certain stages of HIV, starting with acute HIV, which will happen within the first few weeks immediately following infection. So within the first two to four weeks, most people will develop flu-like symptoms, which might last for a couple of weeks, which is the body's response trying to fight off the virus initially. Oh, okay. During this time, a person's viral load is typically very high, and they are very contagious. After that, it progresses into a period of asymptomatic HIV infection. The CDC refers to this stage as clinical latency. HIV is still active, but it reproduces at a very low level. The World Health Organization defines this stage by a lack of outward symptoms. The CDC defines this stage by a CD4 count of 500 or above. This stage can last decades. It depends person to person, though, mostly based on the health of a person's immune system to begin with and lifestyle and that sort of thing. Which one? Is it the latency period? Yeah. For decades? Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, it can go on for a long time. I think the longest that I saw in reading case studies and stuff was like 15 years. Oh, But that's crazy. What's the contagion level? Oh, so it kind of varies. The viral load is typically pretty low at this stage, though. There's not as much of the virus attacking your immune system. A lot of people don't get diagnosed during this point, so the contagion level is fairly low. But because a lot of people don't get diagnosed Uh, at this point, it's it's also very common that it gets spread during this stage. So then it'll typically progress into symptomatic HIV, in which the immune system is noticeably weakened. Just like basic symptoms can include weight loss, joint pain, night sweats, skin disorders, bacterial pneumonia. Because at this point your body can't fight off all of the bacteria and stuff that lives in your body all the time. Right. Yeah, I know that it's like if you get pneumonia is a big one Mm -hmm. that would kill people. Yeah, the flu, pneumonia, like a real bad cold. Yeah, stuff gets crazy. There's also just like, there are sicknesses living inside your body all the time, but your immune system is healthy enough that it's just like, nah, you don't get to do that. Um, it's busy with something else. Right. But if once your immune system starts to break down, all this il- these illnesses start to come to the surface. Tuberculosis and hepatitis are very commonly Oh, contracted. interesting. Is tuberculosis in America a big one? It was during the 80s. I'm oh, not that's sure. so interesting. I guess, like, in my head, tuberculosis is so Victorian. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That, it was actually, it was super common. Um, oh, wild. Yeah. 
So World Health Organization breaks the stage down into mild and advanced symptoms. CDC defines the stage as a CD4 count between 200 and 500. So low, but not super concerningly low. Most people will get diagnosed during this stage, too, because suddenly they're like, wow, I'm sick with every illness (laughs) on the planet. I'm losing a lot of weight, and I'm very sick. (laughs) So after the stage comes AIDS, which is Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome. The World Health Organization defines AIDS by severe symptoms. The CDC will define AIDS as a CD4 count below 200 or as the presence of an AIDS-defining illness. AIDS-defining illnesses fall under the umbrella of opportunistic infections. Opportunistic infections are those that are caused by otherwise harmless viruses, bacteria, fungi, or parasites, which can cause disease when the immune system has been compromised. So things like tuberculosis that aren't super common most of the time. So AIDS-defining illnesses fall under the umbrella of opportunistic infections, but there are certain certain illnesses that are considered AIDS-defining. So one of the more common AIDS-defining illnesses is pneumocystis urovetsi pneumonia. It is abbreviated as PCP, and that is what I will Wait, be. Wait, why is it PCP? Uh, oh, it, pneumocystis? Initially, it was called something else, and the middle word was a, a C. C. Okay. And they thought about changing it to PJP after they changed the name of it, but then they decided that they weren't going to do that because it was just going to get confusing. PCP. So they stuck with PCP. (laughs) (laughs) They'll know what we're talking about. It's fine. So PCP was commonly called gay gay men's pneumonia during the AIDS epidemic. Which is actually an interesting story as to how it got that name, but we'll get there too. Mm. But it's caused by a yeast-like fungus in the lungs. Curiously enough, PCP symptoms are very close to those of COVID-19. Oh, (laughs) Symptoms are typically uh, fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, which... Don't you just love when every illness is fever, cough, and shortness of breath? (laughs) You could have a number of respiratory illnesses who knows really and truly. <laughs> you got all of them oh you just got just google it you've got every illness your lungs are actually just entirely just bacteria pure pneumonia pure fungus <laughs> pure fungus oh, no so the other common aids defining illness is kaposi sarcoma which was called gay cancer oh, sure. that one was the really big one. So it forms in the lining of blood and lymph vessels, and the tumors, which are typically called lesions, will appear as painless purplish spots on Ugh. the skin. Ugh. Yeah. Roll gross. I looked up pictures. Just, Ow. just don't do it. Um, like, I know it says painless, but... Yeah. It sounds like it would be painful. I think it's probably more just, like, not fun to look at. Wait, okay, so the the lesions appear... Are the lesions on the lymph vessels? Because I can't feel good. Like Yeah, they're... Yeah, so they're in the blood and the lymph vessels, Ugh. and they just appear on the skin as oh, they, like, as God. the tumors form under the surface. Ooh. <laughs> I can only imagine. Yeah, it says that it's painless, but I don't know. I feel like any tumor has got to be, like... Or, like, know. swelling. Yeah. Just, like, sore even yeah i don't know i guess i yeah hopefully we'll never experience this yeah there are a number of other aids finding illnesses as well but those are the two that come up most frequently and i can't pronounce most of them so (laughs) um a that a lot of people don't talk about but it is possible to go into is just chronic hiv infection people uh living with hiv and undergoing successful treatment can live with hiv as a chronic condition so it is a lifelong condition but Mm -hmm. you know you can live a fairly relatively normal life right oh yeah that's before it i guess turns into full-blown aids yeah i mean like anything else the earlier you get treatment the better the better the chance of recovery get the 
get tested. <laughs> Do the prep stuff that they have available now. Yeah, we'll talk about Truvada yeah. a little bit. Truvada for prep. That pops up in our Hulu ads all the time. Very frequently. Cracks me up. We also get the old people cell phones with the big numbers, mm-hmm. followed by Truvada. Truvada. <laughs> Which... Uh, I mean, it's still important for heterosexual people to, you know, make sure that they're getting tested. Right. And also important for millennials to have big buttons on their cell phones. (laughs) Right. But Hannah and I are both in monogamous relationships. Like, I don't... Neither neither of us inject drugs. I'm not sure... Where is this coming? It was because we watched so much Broad City and thought these girls watch way too much Broad City for one sitting. What kind of lives do they live (laughs) There, there's some. They're old. <laughs> yep, we are two old sex machines. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! All right, so I'm gonna talk a little bit about the history of HIV/AIDS before the '80s. Okay. Starting with what is believed to be the origins of HIV, Ooh. which we learned about at the Smithsonian Museum. <gasps> we did, listeners. Some backstory. <laughs> into Hannah and Ashley's recent road trip to Washington, D.C. So we went to D.C. to visit my friend. Hi, Calvin. Um, Hey, Calvin! And we spent a lot of time at the Smithsonian, (laughs) which was great. Smithsonian is awesome. Go museums. And in in the middle of our trip, like day two, uh, it's like, oh, Hannah, you don't have a job anymore because when you come back, all schools are shut down. So in the middle of it, the COVID outbreak really becomes a big deal. Yeah, it took publicly. off. Publicly. Um, and so we go to the museum and they conveniently had an exhibit about disease epidemics. We learned about this. And we that's did. where I was going with this side story. Okay, so the most widely accepted theory and pretty much the only theory at this point is that HIV was an adaptation of SIV, which is simian immunodeficiency virus, which is found in monkeys and apes. Hmm. So in 1999, researchers found a strain of SIV called SIV-CPZ in chimpanzees that was almost identical to HIV-1. So the most widely accepted theory is that SIV-CPZ was transferred to humans as a result of chimps being killed and eaten, or that their blood got into cuts and wounds of people in the course of hunting. Ooh. Yeah. Real gross. They're way too human to... Yeah. be hunting. I, after the chimps and stuff that we saw at the zoo in oh, D.C., yeah. I would not, I wouldn't be able. Uh, ooh, they're, mm, They're very there's human. There's a lot of brain behind those eyes. There's <laughs> so much. Not that other animals are not also very valuable and intelligent, but, like, I don't think I could eat a little, a chimp or, Mm-mm. or an ape or a monkey. Or a monkey. <laughs> so, occasionally, instead of the body fighting off SIV, the virus adapted itself within its new human host and became HIV instead. There are four main groups of HIV strains, M, N, O, and P, everybody's favorite part of the alphabet. (laughs) Each of them has a slightly different genetic makeup, which supports the hunter theory, because every time the virus would be passed to a human, it would have adapted slightly differently. Okay. So, wait, so that supports the hunt, like, blood getting in cuts as they're hunting? Yeah, also, like, if they were to consume the meat and it were to infect them that way, because every time that the virus, like, stuck instead of just being fought off, it would have adapted slightly differently. HIV-1 group M is the most studied strain and is responsible for the vast majority of HIV infection today. Mm. Um, M? M. M. 
M as in as in, in, in mansplaining. <laughs> <laughs> so HIV-2 is thought to have crossed over to humans in a similar way uh, sometime around the 1960s, but from SIV-SMM, which is found in sooty mangabe monkeys, Ooh. rather than in chimpanzees. The first verified case of HIV is from a blood sample taken in 1959 from a man living in what is now Kenosha in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Okay. Well, that's so weird that they... I mean, I'm sure there were earlier cases. Yeah, it... So... It's probably been with us for... Yeah, there are a lot of earlier cases where patterns of death from common opportunistic infections suggest that HIV was the cause, but no blood samples to prove whether or not that was actually the case. So studies have shown that the first transmission of SIV to HIV probably took place around 1920 in Kenosha. Um, The area is known for having the most genetic diversity in HIV, so that would reflect the amount of times that it would have been passed to humans and mutated in different ways. Oh, interesting. So, like, each time a different person... Either, like, eats infected meat Mm -hmm. or gets blood on an open Yeah, and the body can't fight it off for whatever reason. Okay. The CDC website said that studies had shown that the first jump to humans may have taken place as far back as the late 1800s. I couldn't find anywhere else that stated that, but I just wanted to cover all my bases. So then the early spread of HIV wouldn't have been a difficult endeavor for the virus. The area surrounding Kenosha is full of roads, railways, and rivers connecting different trade routes. And oh. so there's just... Oh, so like a lot of people coming in and oh, out. Oh, yeah, lots, tons of people. And <laughs> Exactly what you want. Also, uh, <laughs> around the time that the disease started to spread, there was also a growing sex trade in the area. Oh, good. Yeah, so just... No, I would like to clarify, not good at all. No. <laughs> The opposite, in fact. <laughs> Lots of sarcasm happening. Yeah, I don't know if it translates. <laughs> um, okay, so in the 60s, infected Haitian professionals who were working in the colonial Democratic Republic of Congo returned to Haiti. They were initially blamed for the HIV epidemic and suffered a lot of racism, stigma, and discrimination mm. towards the beginning of the epidemic in the U.S., Data suggests that the current epidemic started in the mid to late 1970s. It is suspected that by the 1980s, HIV had spread to five continents. So North America, South America, Europe, Africa, and Australia all are suspected to have had HIV infections by 1980. And with that, we're going to take a quick break. And we are back. Hello, we're back. So we are now going to get into the modern day AIDS crisis. So on June 5th, 1981, the CDC published an article reporting that five previously healthy gay men in LA had been diagnosed with a rare lung infection, uh, which is PCP. All five men also had other unusual infections, indicating that their immune systems weren't working properly. Two had passed away by the time the report was published, and the other three were soon to follow. So on that same day, a dermatologist from New York, Dr. Elvin Friedman Kine, called the CDC to report a cluster of cases of Kaposi's sarcoma in gay men in New York and California. 
in the following days, Los Angeles Times and San Francisco Chronicle reported on the CDC's article, causing others to report similar cases of PCP and Kaposi sarcoma and other opportunistic infections among gay men from around the nation. Then on July 2nd, the Bay Area Reporter, which was a weekly newspaper for San Francisco's queer community, introduced the term gay men's pneumonia. Uh, in Wait, a- it's a... Yeah, it is a... So, it is a newspaper for the queer community. They called it... And they called it Gay Men's Pneumonia. I think just to sort of draw attention to it, because the idea... It was a short piece that just encouraged members of the community who were experiencing symptoms to go seek medical attention. Yeah, I guess if it's like, hey, this thing could affect you. Yeah. Looking back, you're like, ooh. Yeah. But But yeah, now looking back, it added to the stigma a lot. Yeah, Um, for sure. And then the following day, on July 3rd, the CDC and the New York Times both published articles providing information about Kaposi's sarcoma among gay men, and the term gay cancer was born. Uh, neither of the articles actually used that term. I don't want to throw the CDC and the New York Times under the bus. <laughs> neither of them were like, this is gay cancer. But that's just what the general public and all of their homophobia decided to call it. And then, uh, skipping to the end of the year, in December, a pediatric immunologist at Albert Einstein Medical College, Dr. Ari Rubenstein, recognized similar signs of illness affecting five infants that he had been treating. Oh, um, So they were showing signs of severe immune deficiency, including PCP, but the similarities were dismissed by his colleagues because so far symptoms had only been reported among gay men. And oh everybody God. was calling this, like, the gay man's disease. Like, these babies can't be gay. Yeah. <laughs> these are straight babies, don't you know? <laughs> so, at least three of them were children of women using drugs or engaged in sex work, which later would be found out to be risk factors. Right. And then by the end of the year, there were 337 reported cases of individuals with severe immune deficiency in the U.S. Of those cases, 130 had died. Oh, my God. Then we're going to jump ahead to 1982, April 13th, Henry Waxman, the U.S. Representative for California's 24th Congressional District, convened the first congressional hearing on AIDS at the Los Angeles Gay and Lesbian Community Service Center. At the hearing, the head of the CDC's task force on Kaposi sarcoma and opportunistic infections, Dr. James Curran, estimated that tens of thousands of people may have already been infected. Do we know, do you have what year Reagan finally, like, publicly said Oh yeah, HIV is? Because I think it's, like, shockingly late. Oh, yeah. So, please keep in mind that Reagan is in office during all of this, and we will get to his response. There's audio from, I don't want to say what, I want to say chief of staff, but that might not be right, and I don't want to throw the wrong person under the bus. I know it's a different time, but it might be something from the CDC. Somebody medical is like, hey, what are we going to do about this? And he's like, well, are you a fairy? And he's like, well, I'm not either, so why do we care? And it's like, the language that they use is disgusting, and it's so dismissive, and it's like, at the point that the recording is from, there's like thousands of people who have it and who are dying from it, and they totally dismiss it, and it really pisses me off, and I feel weird using that term, but like... Yeah. So, 
Then on May 11th, the New York Times published the first use of the term GRID, which stands for Gay-Related Immune Deficiency. Oh, no! Yeah, uh, so this was a term that was actually being used by some researchers at the time to describe the epidemic, because there wasn't an official name for it. (laughs) That's so stupid to think that, like, sexuality... (laughs) (laughs) If you're gay, you can get this disease. You can get this thing, but, like, if you're straight with the same physical makeup... That's just, like, really, really bad science. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, GRID was the term that was widely accepted for a while there. So that's that's a fun time. So then on June 18th, the CDC published an article that made the first connection between a potentially sexually transmitted agent and the outbreak of Kaposi sarcoma, PCP, and other opportunistic infections among gay men. Prior to this article, uh, the CDC conducted 200-plus interviews with patients to gather information on, among other things, their sexual history. And this is how the term patient zero came to be. So, while the CDC was conducting these interviews, they frequently heard about a nameless, handsome Canadian air steward. No. No, like all 200 were like... Well, and then I met this hot airline worker. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, so after a few dozen interviews, somebody finally had his name. Uh, it looks like Gaten Douglas. Douglas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that guy is in Tiger King. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. But yeah, so his name was Gaetan Dugas. Turns out that of the 200-plus patients interviewed, Dugas could be directly linked to about 40 of them. Gets around. I mean, he's an air steward, so he, like... Literally gets around. Yeah, literally gets around. (laughs) Oh, and almost everybody in the study could be linked to him either second or third hand through... Okay. Like, sleeping with somebody who he'd slept with, or... All right. Interesting. So... Dugas became the center for the first cluster study on AIDS. So he became, like, the middle point, and then they sort of drew a web out from him. So, like, the 200 people that they interviewed, was it a sample, like, across the nation, or was it, like, in L.A. and New York, like, very concentrated It was uh, L.A., New York, and San Francisco. Mm, Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So, but they were the the cities with the highest concentration at the time. And, okay, so he became the center for this cluster study. He was labeled patient O for out of California because he was living in New York at the time. And then through notes being transcribed, the O at some point turned into a zero and he became known as patient zero. (laughs) This poor dude's like, it's not my fault. Right. (laughs) So the term patient zero had never been used before this point. Oh, interesting. This was like the creation of the term patient zero. And then for several years the AIDS epidemic was pinned basically on, on this, this guy. one guy. That's super interesting because I think in my, either my evolutionary biology class or my genetics class in college, they talked about patient zero as in like, yeah, it was linked to this one guy. Yeah, not true. There is what looks like a super interesting documentary on it called Killing Patient Zero. If somebody knows a place where I can stream <laughs> it, send us a shout out, please. I want to watch it so bad, but yeah. I can't find it anywhere online. That's insane. Like, it's like a clerical error. Yeah. 
so. standing by you, Gaetan. The whole AIDS epidemic was like this guy <laughs> because somebody could put a slash through their zero to denote it as a zero and not a capital O. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh my god. Since then, scientific research has not only shown that Dugas was one of thousands already infected by the seventies before symptoms began to surface, but also that he was not the source of many of the cases right. he was linked to. Right. Well, it also seems that's way too easy an answer to be like, oh, there he is, one guy. Yeah. Once we learned what the virus was, they could compare strains of HIV, oh, okay. and his strain was not the same as the strain. And okay. a lot of the people, even the people who they were like, yeah, he definitely gave it to this guy. Oh, he didn't? Oh my yeah. god, so they got it from, yeah, somebody, from somebody else, else. after or before coming in contact with him. Right. What we it? talked about the latency period can be years, years and years long. long. Yeah, what? So these people probably got it way before way they before. even came in contact with right. him. Right. What, like, a disservice. Yeah. And he died before any of this information surfaced. So oh, he so he would... died, like, everybody thinking, like, that sucks. That's, like... Gotta, that's gotta be thousands of people, right? Yeah. Like, all saying, oh, it's this guy's fault? Yeah, so he oh. was falsely vilified in the media for years before and after his death. People just portrayed him as this uncaring asshole who's just like, I don't care who I give this disease to, I'm gonna have sex with as many people as I want. Which I'm sure probably, like, nobody knew what this thing was. Right, like, I know there's people who do that, which is terrible, but at the time, people didn't have any information for how it spread, who it can affect, that they even have it, because you could go a decade and not know. But it's very fitting for the time. The queer community, especially gay men, were and often still are portrayed as too promiscuous and, like, right. you can't sleep with that many people. And It was a stereotype that was super solidified during the 80s, and it helped a lot to vilify Dugas, even though he was just a guy just trying a to live his best life, wanted to be an yeah. air steward so that he could go meet hot guys in different cities, which, right. like... Normally it would be like, you do you, man. Yeah. In this situation... Right, like modern day, I'd be like, yeah, you do that, just use a condom. Use protection. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so then on July 16th, 1982, the CDC published another article uh, with the first reports of immunosuppression in patients with hemophilia and no oh, other known right. risk factors. Two of the three patients discussed had already passed away by the time of the publication. This is, this is 1983. 82. 82. So, yeah, this was the first indication that it could also be transmitted through blood. Um, so then, September 24th, the CDC published yet another article, this time using the term AIDS for the first time, so we can stop we calling go. this thing GRID. So, <laughs> so AIDS standing for Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome. They also provided the first case definition, which was a disease at least moderately predictive of a defect in cell-mediated immunity occurring in a person with no known cause for diminished resistance to that disease. And then on September 28th, Philip Burton, a representative from California, and Ted Weiss, a rep from New York, introduced the first legislation to allocate funding for AIDS and research, but it never made it past committee. Uh. And then on December 10th, and this is what really sort of drew the public eye to the AIDS epidemic, because a 20-month-old infant who had required multiple blood transfusion oh, no. had developed unexplained cellular immunodeficiency. Oh, no. And after some donor tracing, it was revealed that one of the baby's blood donors had died of AIDS in August. This was the first time that people, like, really cared about this disease, because now it wasn't gay men, it was a baby. A baby, right. 
So then that brings us to 1983, when on January 1st, Ward 86 opened in San Francisco, which was the first dedicated outpatient AIDS clinic, which, super exciting, people have a place to go now. So the ward was a collaboration between San Francisco General Hospital and UC San Francisco. This was also the birthplace of the San Francisco model of care, uh, which became the gold standard for treating HIV patients. So treating patients with compassion and respect, providing an array of health and social services in one facility, and collaborating closely with local health departments and community organizations. Then on January 7th, the CDC published an article reporting the first case of AIDS in women whose male partners had AIDS. Oh, wow. Is it, this is 83? Yeah. So this is like three-ish years Yeah, after? this is about two years in, because it started in 81. So then on May 20th, Dr. Francois Barre-Sinouzi, I think I didn't take <laughs> French, reported the discovery of lymphadenopathy-associated virus, or LAV, that could have potentially been the cause of AIDS. Later that year in September, the CDC published an article identifying what they believe to be all major routes of HIV transmission. So transmission through casual contact, food, water, air, and surfaces had all been ruled out. Later in September, after a New York City physician, Joseph Sonnabend, was threatened with eviction from his office building for treating patients with AIDS, uh. the state's attorney general and Lambda Legal, which is a nonprofit which fights for the civil rights of queer folks and people living with HIV, joined together to file the first AIDS discrimination lawsuit. So, like, what's he supposed to do? Like, people, sh- sick people show up and you're supposed to be like, not nah, go die? Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah, they tried to evict him from his office building for treating sick people for, for, for doing his job yes. <laughs> yep i'm pretty sure there's like an an oath that you have yeah, to take yeah i was going to say doesn't that like do no harm like doing nothing in yeah. that case would be doing harm right So then in 1984, in April, the National Cancer Institute announced that they had found the cause of AIDS, and they called it Human T Lymphotropic Virus Type 3, or HTLV3. Rolls off the tongue. Yeah, just flows right (laughs) off. So there was actually a lawsuit from the French government about, like, who discovered the virus, (laughs) Because it was the same thing that the French discovered. They just called it something different. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, it was discovered that that virus and what the French had discovered were the same thing and most likely the cause of AIDS. So blood tests to screen for the virus were also in development. The hope was finding a vaccine within the next two years. This was 1984. It is now the year 2020. (laughs) And we still do not have an AIDS vaccine. I don't like those statistics. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Not great. Then, on October 9th, 1984, the New York Times reported that AIDS may be transmissible through saliva, uh, and it would be another two years before proof emerged that that was not the case. Okay, I was going to say, I don't don't think that's right. (laughs) Yeah, not true. That is not accurate information. Okay, so then, October 10th. 1984, San Francisco Public Health Director Mervyn Silverman ordered 14 bathhouses and sex clubs catering to gay men to close immediately. So, a bathhouse is spa-like, typically has a sauna, um, usually like a hot tub, locker room, showers, but also, uh, like, back rooms for nefarious activities. Like, like, okay, all right, but, like, what's going going on in the locker room? (laughs) Yeah, larger ones sometimes had pools and that sort of thing. Uh, sometimes bars and stuff, but okay. it was essentially a sex club okay. for gay men Which to is... hook up in. 
I can support shutting that down. Like, yeah, <laughs> during this these trying times. Yeah, bathhouses were kind of a ground zero for AIDS transmission, especially in sense. San Francisco. It also made tracking the virus extremely difficult because often names weren't exchanged. That was not top priority. And because of light, <laughs> you know, you can't even see what he looked. Oh, yeah, no. The lighting's so low that a lot of people didn't, like, couldn't even describe the faces of the people oh, they had had encounters with. It was just, like, walking. Oh, God, as in, like, those are very unsafe choices. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Not, oh, God, like... And this was before the time that gay men really had any indication that they should be using protection because... I mean, there were were STDs, which... But most people were... But if you're like, I can live with that. Yeah. I could see, like, you can't get pregnant. Right. So, back in 82, Silverman had held a meeting with the bathhouse owners in San Francisco asking them to impose measures to reduce the risk, but these requests were met with outrage and refusal to comply. (laughs) So, because these were technically legitimate businesses, there was no... Well, that's true, they're not exchanging money. No, there was typically, like, a membership fee that they would pay at the door to, like, get in, but then after that, it was just, It'd be, like, a gym membership. Yeah, so they were legitimate businesses, so Silverman had to prove that there was a real threat to public health in order to get them shut down. So the city's gay men were kind of split on the issue. There were those who were like, yeah, we need to close down these places. This is super dangerous. Those who fought against the closure of bathhouses were often viewed as irresponsible and putting their own sexual freedom before the health and safety of others, but it's obviously (laughs) more complicated than that. Right. So in hindsight, yeah, it's easy for us to be like, right. Well, I mean, there's people doing that now, though, who are like, I'm still gonna go to barbecues and parties and whatever, even though people are saying, like, hey, no, you really shouldn't be. Yeah, it's the same, yeah, it's the same general concept. Also, though, one of the big arguments was, today the baths, tomorrow the ovens, so if they close down the bathhouses, they could keep cutting freedoms away from the queer community okay. until they're all locked up in concentration camps. And oh. then it's, it's a slippery slope Yikes. fallacy, but yeah. in the 80s, Uh, probably a real fear for a lot of the queer community. The other thing was people could gather relatively anonymously. So men who were still closeted could go and not be outed. That brings us to 1985, where the CDC revised the AIDS case definition to note that AIDS is caused by this newly identified virus. And then in March, uh, the FDA issued the first commercial test, ELISA, to detect HIV antibodies. Oh, interesting. And then blood banks at that point began screening the U.S. blood supply. That's um, good. Get on that. Yeah. <laughs> Do that. August 27th, Ryan White, an Indiana teenager who contracted AIDS through contaminated blood products used to treat his hemophilia, uh, was refused entry to his middle school. Oh, he's in middle school? Yeah. Oh. So just a, just a baby. Um, his parents filed a lawsuit, and then the legal battle drew the first, like, big national attention to yeah, AIDS. It's a kid. Like, yeah. It's not his fault. Yeah, middle school, what, like, 12, 13 years old. Oh. 1985 was just full of nonsense. So on August 31st, four days later, the Pentagon announced that beginning in October, it would be testing all new military recruits for HIV and would reject anyone who tested Uh. positive. Anybody who had HIV could no longer enter the military. And that is still in effect today. What's the reasoning behind? Like, I'm not sure. Spread it to everyone else? I. I guess, but, like, I think it's generally discouraged for you to, like, sleep with 
people yeah. who you're in the military with anyway. So I'm not I'm not sure what the current reasoning is. Like I could I guess I could see like the fear when they still didn't really know what this thing was. Right. Um, but now it, it seems it seems outdated. Yeah. To still have that in place. But I also I don't know enough about how the military works. Yeah, I like maybe they're having a lot of unprotected sex. Yeah, <laughs> I maybe. Don't know. I guess it could also be like it if you I mean they do a lot of like, you know, training and stuff where yeah, I guess you could get you... injured and if blood gets into the cut of somebody else. I feel like I don't know. Like, that's super dangerous anyway, mm-hmm. so maybe if that's something that's happening, you should... <laughs> if you're bleeding on other people. <laughs> yeah, you should maybe try to not do that, but I guess I could kind of... But I just, I think that's wild that that's still... Yeah, that some, seems... Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it seems like a silly way to be able to discriminate against mm-hmm. people. And also, as stated earlier, if your viral load is below a certain point, yeah, it's almost can't... impossible to transmit the they virus. Should have it be like if you're vi- like we're gonna reject you if it's above- but that goes along with like health things like right if you have a hole in your heart you yeah. also can't do it and yeah if it's... you have real bad asthma you also can't do it and if you have a viral load above a certain mark right I mean at that point you're probably pretty unhealthy anyway like right like <laughs> probably shouldn't be you should be seeking medical treatment not enlisting in the military oh, right. I don't know if boot camp is gonna be a great fit for you. <laughs> Maybe it's the only way you can get health care, though. And yeah, true. So, we have now reached September 17th, 1985, when President Reagan makes his first public mention of AIDS. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, I'm gonna shame Reagan's ghost. Reagan. Boo. Boo. <laughs> um, he made the first public mention of AIDS, calling it top priority, while also... <gasps> is it, is it, though, Ronnie? Is it really? <laughs> while also defending the administration against criticism that funding for AIDS research was inadequate so he's top priority but also like hey we had more important things to pay for right like what (laughs) like the star wars project (laughs) (laughs) yeah and then on october 2nd congress allocated 190 million dollars to aids research which was 70 million more than the reagan administration's budget had requested yeah. No, they yeah. didn't, because you always request more than what you think you're going to get. Yeah. Like, no. Yeah, so the Reagan administration uh, requested about $120 million, and then Congress was like, nah, that's not enough. Here's some more. Can, can you imagine Congress giving more money? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't. <cannot. laughs> yeah. I'm sorry if there are any Reagan lovers out there. Uh, I'm sorry. Go somewhere else. <laughs> Reagan sucks. Once again, this isn't the podcast for you. No. Nope. Reagan's fan club. Please see yourself the, out. The Ronnie Reagan fan club. Ronnie Reagan stands can get the hell out. So then later that same month, so later in October, New York State Public Health Council empowered local officials to close gay bathhouses, bars, clubs, and other places where high-risk sexual activity took place. It's probably for the best. Yeah. Um, probably a good call for the time. Obviously, there was a lot of controversy right. over it because it closes down, like, the community aspect. The Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors tried to follow suit in December, but were blocked by a lawsuit filed by bathhouse owners. The court ruled in favor of bathhouse owners, saying that the venues could offer opportunities to provide HIV-AIDS education. (laughs) They're gonna give you a pamphlet. Yeah, I find that very... I want to know who they bribed (laughs) to get that ruling to go through. Sleazy bathhouses open. Right. 
Let's see. December 19th, uh, an LA Times poll found that the majority of Americans favored quarantining people who had AIDS. Interesting. Um, so at this point, it was known <laughs> that it couldn't be passed through, like, casual contact or touching the same services. <laughs> Keep them away. But they just wanted, like, just put them in a bubble. That seems fueled by homophobia. Probably, largely. <laughs> also, here's my thing, right? There were so many people with AIDS oh by this God. point. <laughs> yeah, that... Where? Where are you going to put all these people? <laughs> well, I guess that would be the concern for, like, the, like, internment camps, I guess. Yeah. Like. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because, yeah, at, at some point, it's just going to be, like, warehouses with God, people like, just, history like. history just repeating itself. Yeah. So, in 1985, more people were diagnosed with AIDS than in the previous three years combined. Oh, my God. Yeah. Huge. So, this is probably just, like fallout because if it can last if you don't know you've got it for like the first 10 years of having it yeah this puts it at like this is like a 60s 70s issue yeah that then it started that has exploded yeah we know about it it's like the yellowstone volcano it was just it was just sitting there (laughs) waiting yeah and then the average life expectancy after diagnosis at this point was 15 months oh my god could you imagine just that's like barely over a year yeah that's so sh- oh my gosh that's yeah. so scary yeah could you imagine getting diagnosed and somebody being like yeah so you've got about so a year to live got about a year do what you want to do but also you might not be able to because you're gonna be real sick yeah <laughs> awful so may 1st 1986 the international committee of taxonomy of viruses announced that the virus that caused aids would officially be known as human immunodeficiency virus or hiv important so stuff yeah 1986 we got a name <laughs> we got a name so we got a name for the disease itself we got a name for the virus that causes it we're on a roll here <laughs> we're doing good things as far as naming things as far as naming we have named some things all right, listeners, we took a quick break. It's going to be edited out for you, but I now have a cough drop in my mouth, uh, so I apologize, <laughs> but it's just what's happening. So we have now reached 1987. So on March 12th, AIDS activist Larry Kramer founded the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power or ACT UP in New York City. His goal was to create a political direct action group. So ACT UP is super cool. They're still active today. They did several things during the bulk of the AIDS epidemic, including a protest on Wall Street in 1987, uh, a sit-in at the FDA in 1988, and a protest at the National Institute of Health in 1990. So then on March 19th, the FDA approved the first medication for AIDS, AZT. AZT. Um, which was an antiretroviral drug initially developed to treat cancer. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. That same day, the FDA also issued regulations that expanded access to promising new medications that had not yet been licensed, accelerating the drug approval process by two to three years. So, Oh, wow. April 19th, 1987 was the day that Princess Diana made headlines when she was photographed shaking hands with an HIV-positive patient in London. So this is after the point that we know that it can't be transmitted through casual contact, surfaces, and saliva. At this point, we also (laughs) know that saliva is not a route of transmission. Not a thing. On May 15th, the U.S. Public Health Services added HIV as a dangerous and contagious disease to its immigration exclusion list. Mm. Testing became mandatory for all visa applicants. So you could not get a visa to travel to the U.S. if you had HIV. 
Uh, that because yeah, we're so great at it. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> what are they going to do, make more HIV? <laughs> yeah, I mean, potentially, but yeah, right. dumb reason to tell people that they can't travel here. Uh, that immigration ban wasn't lifted until 2010. Oh, no, that's, I'm alive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Obama lifted that ban. Hey, way to go, Obama. Yay, Obama! Yay. So, on August 5th, uh, a federal judge ordered Florida's DeSoto County School Board to enroll three HIV-positive brothers, Ricky, Robert, and Randy Ray. I did not make that up. That is real. What um, are their names? Ricky, Robert, and Randy. And their and last Robert name is Ray. Go by Robbie. <laughs> I want to think so. <laughs> I am going to choose to think so. Um, okay, but in all seriousness, Florida's DeSoto County School Board was ordered to enroll these three brothers after the board had refused to allow them in because they were <laughs> HIV positive, all three boys had hemophilia, which is how they had acquired oh, HIV. I think I've heard this. Following the ruling, the town's residents were outraged and refused to allow their children to attend school. Why is it always Florida? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So, yeah, Florida so, is the worst. <laughs> so parents were pulling their kids out of school. No, oh, but you're not going to... Oh. Yeah, even though, again, at this point, like, unless... Your kids are either having sex with these kids. With these hemophiliac children. Children, like actual children, <sighs> or like swapping, like making blood packs on the playground. Yeah. I don't that, I mean, that was a big thing in like, I don't know if they still do it in elementary where it's like, don't make blood packs. And I remember being like, who the hell <laughs> is doing this? So. If your kid, if like if your students are making blood packs, maybe watch your students. Closer. Where are the recess monitors? <laughs> anyway, I, mean, I guess it was the eighties, so who God, knows? These poor kids have yeah. hemophilia. They just want to go to school, man. Their yeah. mom just want to homeschool. <laughs> right. So, so they have to be let in. Uh, but parents were outraged and wouldn't allow their own children to go to school. You homeschool your kids, then enjoy. <laughs> uh, there were bomb and death oh, death threats God. made against the school and the Ray family. And then on August 28th, someone oh, set fire to their house, destroying whoa. it. That's evil. Right. What is like, wrong with people? Not at all these kids' fault. No, they, they have human... They got contaminated blood. Yeah. Are you kidding? You're gonna burn down their house and everyone in it? Because yeah. they wanted to go get an education? Oh my God. Wild. Florida. Florida. <laughs> I want to say it's just Florida, but... Yeah. No. Um, so... But I can blame Florida right now. <laughs> yeah. Florida, I mean, if there are any listeners from Florida, we love you. We sh- we're sure you're not a terrible person. Just something Sh- happens it- when Flo- Floridians <laughs> yeah, it's, gather. <laughs> it's always Florida. Um, maybe it's something with all the gator meat. <laughs> um, so... Uh, the boys and their parents at the time were staying with relatives. Uh, nobody was seriously injured, but the boy's uncle was sent to the hospital for smoke inhalation. Um, and the family relocated soon after. They were just like, all right, uh, yeah. we're out. Oh my god, this family had to leave me. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah, could you imagine being, like, an adult human being like, I don't like that these um, kids are going to school. These children, like, literal children who are sick. Yeah. And also this is a time when, like, they would not be doing great. Like, it's still not a great outlook. No. After diagnosis. So, like, can you cut them some slack? Like, yeah. All your kids are gonna be fine. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah, that's the thing is, at this point, it was general knowledge that HIV wasn't... It's not you can't, spit. It's no. not. And also, like, if these... Like, they were hemophiliac, so... 
if they started bleeding, that would be serious anyway. Right. So they're probably going to avoid yeah. bleeding. <laughs> right. Like, it's not a serious enough issue where you should keep these kids from going to school. It can't be transmitted through, like, somebody, like, through them coughing on somebody right. else. It's not. But I guess, like, people in groups are panicky. Yeah. It's like all the Karens panic buying toilet paper. Except in this case, it's Karens burning down a house yeah. with children, sick children inside. PSA, do not panic buy toilet paper and do not burn down yes. people's houses. Stop. Both bad. <laughs> then, to follow that up, on October 14th, the Senate adopted the Helms Amendment. Oh boy. So... The Helms Amendment required all federally financed education materials about AIDS to stress sexual abstinence mm. and not promote <laughs> homosexuality or drug use. <laughs> Remember all those times in school when your teacher was promoting drug use? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know what you should do? Some drugs. Use drugs. <laughs> um, That's exactly the message that schools sent. Yeah, absolutely. So, Senator Jesse Helms from North Carolina raised red flags about a sexually explicit comic distributed by the Gay Men's Health Crisis in New York. I couldn't find any images of this sexually explicit comic, but I imagine it had something to do with, hey, if you're gonna have sex, these are the appropriate ways right. to not you know, to lower risk factors. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I couldn't find it anywhere. But the issue was that the group had received federal funding. And so Oh, and this... people got mad that they Yeah. Mm -hmm. They had gave accurate information about Yeah, they had sexually explicit safety. comic. Ugh. Yeah. So according to Helms, if the American people saw these books, they would be on the verge of revolt. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you see an inappropriate picture and you just pick up the nearest sharp object and start <laughs> looting. <laughs> like that's it. That that threw me over the edge. <laughs> like if you see these like dirty magazines. <laughs> what? Uh so his initial proposal was that none of the CDC money could be used on materials or activities that promote, encourage, or condone homosexuality, illegal drugs, or sexual activity outside of marriage. Mm. Um, <laughs> right. Oh. So, abstinence till marriage, no gay anything, and also no legal, like, no legal drug use, I guess I can get on board right. with. Right, like, I hate that they throw that in there, because it's like, that is a valid argument. Right, like, that is a law, <laughs> you can't use illegal drugs. Like, and it is, and it's like, oh. But, like, homosexuality, not hurting anybody, as no. long as you're doing Practice it. Practice, safe. Like, safe sex. Safe sex. Just Indeed. across the board, it does not matter how you identify right. it. Please practice safe sex. Initially, the language also said that it couldn't condone homosexuality and they're, or sex outside of marriage, and they're like, no, you gotta throw that out. It just can't promote it, which okay. is different, <laughs> but if you don't condone it, then you can't provide information about it, like, right. at all. You can't be like, if you're doing it... It's super, like, censorship of, oh, like, yeah. you wouldn't be able to talk about like, gay sex at all, or, no. like, gay relationships at all. No. Or, I guess, like, I shouldn't say gay, like, same sex. Right. Yeah. Anything. Because people would be like, oh, it's inappropriate. Yeah. Which, wild. Mm. Wild times. I guess I kind of do that. Like, people try to do that with, like, sex ed in schools. 
yeah. regardless. But... Um, yeah, abstinence-only education is still a big thing mm-hmm. in, a lot of, in a lot of school districts. Uh, the school district that I went to that my siblings are now going to actually just threw out abstinence-only education uh, a couple of years well ago. Done. There were a ton of outrage <laughs> about it, but woohoo, good job, Forest Hills, proud of you. I don't think, we learned about, we had sex ed in my middle school, in my, yeah, middle school, but it was a lot of, like, the number one, the only 100% method is abstinence. Oh, yeah. But they still talked about, you know, they talked about methods and everything that goes along with it. I don't even remember talking about, like, condoms or anything like that. It was just, like, abstinence is the only way to 100% guarantee. And we got these little cards that were our (laughs) ATM cards, which stood for abstinence till marriage. And I remember walking through the hallway and hearing some dude go, yeah, if some girl's pulling my pants down, I'm gonna whip out this card and be like, <laughs> no! No! It's <laughs> my ATM card. <laughs> no, that's so, like, hello, fellow youths, what yeah. are the kids like? <laughs> ATM cards? It was just a little crappy piece so of construction dumb. paper. Like, so, then we're moving on to 1988. On May 26th, U.S. Surgeon General C. Everett Koop launched the country's first coordinated HIV-AIDS education campaign by mailing 107 mm. million copies <laughs> of an eight-page booklet, Understanding AIDS, to all American households. Um, yeah. Which, at the time, was the largest public mailing in history. <laughs> And the first time that the federal government had provided explicit sex information to the public. Oh, wow. That's super interesting. Which is also wild, because I don't know if you talk about or going to get into it, but C. Everett Coop was a religious dude oh. who was very, like, homosexuality is a sin and, like, sex before marriage is a sin. But he was a doctor and he was, like, you know, the whole do no harm thing. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I don't agree with it, but it's my job and I need to keep people safe. And that's why he did it, which is why I'm like, go Coop. Go see Everett Coop. Homosexuality is not a sin, but it's you... not a sin. But thank you for doing your job. Yeah, thanks <laughs> despite for doing your, job. your personal beliefs. <laughs> I appreciate you. That's uh, some doing the right thing. Right. <laughs> some good doctrine. Yeah, <laughs> some good doctrine. He looks like a man who would say the word doctrine. <laughs> so then, on August 9th, drug counselor David Purchase set up the nation's first needle exchange program in Tacoma, Washington. Purchase also distributed condoms and paid for all supplies out of pocket. Within the first five months, he had distributed 13,000 needles. Holy cow. So is that, like, what are the needles being used for? Um, so he set this up outside of, I think, like, a drug clinic, but also a part of town where a lot of, like, illegal drug deals went down. So if you're gonna do it... If you're gonna do it, do it safe. He... He didn't ask questions. He Mm -hmm. was super non-judgmental. If people were like, so what's this about? He was like, you give me your dirty needles, I give you a clean one, and that's it. Like, Mm -hmm. no questions asked. I'm just trying to... diabetes. (laughs) Right. His thing was he was just trying to keep people alive. And then December 1st, 1988, World AIDS Day was recognized for the first time. Oh, wow. So then in 1989, the number of reported AIDS cases in the U.S. reached 100,000. Oh, my God. So this is eight years into the epidemic, Mm. and we're at 100,000 cases. And that gets us out of the 1980s, so I think we're going to take another quick break. And we are back. 
All right, so we are now jumping in to the 1990s. So January 18th, 1990, the CDC reported the possible transmission of HIV to a patient through a dental procedure by an oh, HIV-positive dentist. What? Yeah. So do you spit his bloody spit in their mouth? They're not entirely Lick sure. His fingers? I read the CDC report, and it sounds like there were a couple different pa- it, was, it was one woman who initially reported it and was like, my dentist has HIV. I now have HIV, and I think he gave it to me. And apparently ah. there were a couple other patients, too. What are they doing with their dentist? Right. Because, <laughs> like, what is happening? Which, I mean, I guess, like, it would be easy. Yeah, if your gums are bleeding. Bleeding. It would make more sense to get it, like, if the dentist gets if it the from dentist, a patient. Right. I can confused. see, like, I don't know, you have a cut or you, like, touch your face or something. Yeah, so I'm more confused as to how it got to the patients to begin with. They're like, totally, they're doing some... There's something They're doing the on. dirty with their dentist. Yeah, they gotta <laughs> be. I feel, now it's gonna be not at all that case and dude. Yeah, I'd, I'm not entirely sure. Like I said, I kind of, I read the CDC report, but there wasn't any, there weren't any definitive answers <laughs> in it. CDC's like, dude, I don't know either. Like... <laughs> but it raised a lot of debate about common medical and dental procedures and whether or not they were safe to be performed by people who were HIV positive. Interesting. So then, in June, domestic and international groups boycotted the 6th Annual International AIDS Conference in San Francisco to protest the U.S. immigration policy on HIV. Mm. And then, in July, Congress enacted the Americans with Disabilities Act, prohibiting discrimination against individuals with disabilities, including people living with HIV-AIDS. Didn't change the military policy. Didn't change the uh, travel policy. How? Hmm, that seems like discrimination. <laughs> Let's see. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> Uh, 1991 was when the Visual AIDS Artist Caucus launched the Red Ribbon oh, yeah. Project to create a visual symbol to demonstrate compassion for people living with AIDS, uh, and that's when the Red Ribbon became the international symbol of AIDS awareness. And then November 7th uh, was when Magic Johnson announced that he was HIV positive, and then November 24th was when Freddie Mercury died mm, that's um, right. of bronchial pneumonia and resulting he, from AIDS. Yeah, and he didn't tell anybody, right? Because people were upset because they were like, oh, we could, like, raise more money for research. Yeah. But that's a really personal thing. Yeah. Um, so then in 1992, the 8th International AIDS Conference was originally scheduled to be held in Boston, but was moved to Amsterdam due to the U.S. immigration restrictions. Mm. Yeah, you can't even come. Right. Yeah, people from out of the country who had HIV um, wouldn't be able to to come for the conference. Uh, That was also, so 1992 was also the year that AIDS became the leading cause of death for U.S. men aged uh, 25 to 44. Holy cow. Yeah. So June of 1993, Congress enacted the National Institute of Health Revitalization Act. This gave the Office of AIDS Research primary oversight of all National Institute of Health AIDS research. Uh, It also required the National Institute of Health and other research agencies to expand involvement of women and minorities in all research, because prior to this, it was mostly white men Mm -hmm. who were being studied, which... Does not give an accurate read. (laughs) No. Increase your sample. 
Uh, it also codified the U.S. HIV immigration exclusion policy into law. That was signed by President Clinton on June 10th. So then in August, the Women's Interagency HIV Study and HIV Epidemiology Study both began, and these were the first major U.S. federally funded research studies on women with HIV and AIDS. Oh, interesting. Oh, that's so, that's so late in the game. Yeah, this is 1994. Three. So this is over a decade into <laughs> and all this. Probably a smaller demographic, but like... And then December 18th, the CDC published an article expanding the AIDS case definition to state that people living with HIV who had a CD4 count below 200 would be diagnosed with AIDS. In 1994, AIDS became the number one cause of death for all Americans, ages oh 25 to 44. Whew. So... Anybody, doesn't matter. If you're ages 25 to 44, the most likely way for you to die is AIDS. Is that wild? And then in June of 1995, the FDA approved the first protease inhibitor, which started a new era of highly active antiretroviral therapy, or HART. The effectiveness of this treatment was highlighted at the following year's International AIDS Convention, bringing about a period of optimism. This type of treatment also brought about a lot of side effects, though, that would come up later. By October of 1995, 31.5 million cases of AIDS had been reported in the U.S. And then on December 6th, President Clinton hosted the first White House conference on HIV AIDS. <laughs> that's so late. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's like... That's the year you were born. That is the year I was born, which means we went through Reagan, HW, right? Yeah, it must have been. HW does not come up even once. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on a minute. <laughs> So we, it took us two full presidencies. Mm-hmm. So now I'm alive. Well, am I alive? Yes, year. you're alive. Which is very strange because I, people don't talk about that. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems like, oh, that was well before I was born. And I was like, nope, it's happening. Current, like, um, little baby Hannah exists in the world and so does the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. Let's see. Then... In 1996, the number of new AIDS cases diagnosed in the U.S. decreased for the first time since the beginning of the epidemic. Progress! Hooray! That same year, AIDS was also no longer the leading cause of death for all Americans ages 25 to 44. However, it did remain the leading cause of death for African Americans in that age group. No! And then also in 1996, the FDA kind of went wild and approved a lot of things. (laughs) Um, So, May 14th, they approved the first HIV home testing and collection kit. Um, They also approved the first viral load testing kit in order to measure the level of HIV in the blood. Okay. And then June 21st, they also approved the first non-nucleoside transcriptase inhibitor drug. And then we are on to 1997, which is the year I was born. Which is the year that the CDC reported the first substantial decline in AIDS death in the U.S. since the beginning of the epidemic. So, yay! Hooray! I was born in the good year. <laughs> I was not. <laughs> no. <laughs> See, Hannah just had to be born into the world for things to get better. <laughs> things started getting better after that. I fixed it. <laughs> <laughs> you hear it, heard it here first, folks. Hannah Miller solved the AIDS epidemic. <laughs> she did it. <laughs> 
Yeah, so this was largely due to heart, so the highly active antiretroviral therapy. There was a 47% decline compared to the previous year in AIDS oh, deaths. Wow. Oh, wow. May 18th, President Clinton announced that the goal of finding an effective HIV vaccine within 10 years would be top national priority. I want to uh, point <laughs> out that 10 years would have been 2007. Oh! Uh, we did not meet that goal either. <laughs> So that year, the Joint United Nations Program on AIDS estimated that 30 million people worldwide had AIDS and that 16,000 people were newly diagnosed each day. Oh my god. And then this is also the point where resistance to drugs started popping up pretty frequently Mm. as more people got on HIV treatment. So then in 1998, the CDC reported that African Americans accounted for 49% of AIDS-related deaths in the U.S. Oh, my God. So the AIDS-related mortality rate for African Americans was 10 times that of white people and three times that of Latinx people. In March, African American leaders, including members of the Congressional Black Caucus, or the CBC, were briefed on the highly disproportionate impact of HIV and AIDS in their communities. They developed a call to action requesting that the President and the Surgeon General declared HIV-AIDS to be a state of emergency in the African-American community. Mm-hmm. In October, President Clinton declared AIDS to be a severe and ongoing health crisis in the African-American and Hispanic communities in the U.S., and announced a special package of initiatives aimed at reducing the impact of HIV-AIDS on racial and ethnic minorities. So with the leadership of the CBC, Congress funded the Minority AIDS Initiative, which invested $156 million to improve the nation's effectiveness in preventing and treating HIV-AIDS in African-American, Hispanic, and other minority communities. Mm. In 1999, the World Health Organization announced that HIV-AIDS had become the fourth biggest killer worldwide uh, and the number one cause of death in Africa. Mm. It was estimated that 33 million people were living with HIV and 14 million had died of AIDS. Oh my god. So now we are out of the 1990s, we are into the 2000s. I'm going to start jumping around a little bit more. So, on November 7th, 2002, uh, the FDA approved the first rapid HIV diagnostics kit. It could provide results with 99.6% accuracy in less than 20 minutes. Oh, wow. It could also be stored at room temperature and required no specialized equipment, no specialized equipment, and it could be used outside of a traditional lab or clinical setting. September 22nd, 2006, the CDC released new recommendations stating that anyone aged 13 to 64 should be screened routinely and those at high risk should be tested yearly for HIV. Mm. July 31st, 2008, President Bush signed legislation reauthorizing PEPFAR, which was the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, uh, which was created by Bush in 2003. The bill contained a rider lifting the blanket ban on HIV-positive travelers to the U.S. uh, and giving the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services authority to admit people living with HIV-AIDS on a case-by-case basis. Okay. Um, Good progress. Yeah, so it was tucked into a bill (laughs) meant to do other things, but they were like, maybe we can just throw this on there, too. As always. Mm Mm-hmm. December 2009, Obama signed the Consolidation Appropriations Act, which modified the ban 
on the use of federal funds for needle exchange programs. When applicable, federal funds could be used for personnel, equipment, syringe disposal services, educational materials, communications, and marketing activities and evaluations. So still couldn't be used to buy the the Mm -hmm. syringes or the needles, but it could be used for other things around it. Yeah. Okay. Let's see. January 4th, 2010, the HIV travel and immigration ban was officially lifted. Woo! Thanks, Obama. (laughs) (laughs) 2012 was kind of a big year. On July 3rd, the FDA approved the first at-home HIV testing kit that let users know their HIV status right away. Oh, wow. July 16th, the FDA approved Truvada for prep. Truvada for prep. If anybody's seen those, everybody's seen those commercials. I don't know what I'm talking about. But that meant adults who didn't have HIV but were at high risk could take the medication to reduce the risk of getting the virus through sexual activity. If you are at high risk for HIV, yep. do the prep. Do the prep. Do the thing. Talk to your healthcare provider. Do like those hip millennials in the Truvada <laughs> yeah. ad. Yeah. The ones that are dancing around all happy and <laughs> laying there in bed with their sleeping partner talking to a camera as if their partner's <laughs> not gonna notice the camera. <laughs> and then July 22nd through 27th of 2012, the 19th International AIDS Conference was held in Washington, D.C., which was the first time since 1990 that the conference had been held in the U.S. November 21st, 2013, Obama signed the HIV Organ Policy Equity Act, uh, or the HOPE Act, allowing people living with HIV to receive organs from other infected donors. So previously, people with HIV couldn't be organ donors at all. The HOPE Act had the potential of saving about a thousand lives a year. And then March 4th, 2014, uh, European researchers announced that the first phase of the Partner Study, an observational study that focused on the risks of sexual HIV transmission when an HIV-positive person was on treatment found that no HIV-positive partner who was undergoing antiretroviral therapy and had an undetectable viral load had transmitted HIV. So that was when the undetectable means untransmittable came to light. So that is what I have for baseline knowledge. I do want to talk really quick about blood donation. The blood donation policy blood donation. in the U.S. because that was a big thing that changed during the AIDS epidemic was men who have sex with men's ability to donate blood. Hey listeners, this next section contains a brief description of violence against the queer community. There will be a chime sound from which you can jump ahead 20 seconds if you'd like to skip it. So this started on January 4th, 1983. The CDC hosted a public meeting to discuss ways to protect the nation's blood supply from AIDS. Um, There were representatives from the FDA, the National Institute of Health, Blood Service, and Hemophilia Communities, and gay activists. No consensus on appropriate action was reached, but in March of that same year, the FDA Office of Biologics issued a non-mandatory guideline recommending that members of groups at increased risk for AIDS refrain from donating blood. This included men who had sex with men, who were currently active with multiple partners, anyone who had overt symptoms of immune deficiency, or had previously engaged in sexual relations with people who had such symptoms. Mm. The policy underwent numerous revisions, but in 1984, it was revised to include men who had sex with more than one man since 1979, and then in 1986, it was revived, revised again to include any man who had had sex with a man more than one time since 1977. And then, 
1992, the FDA issued a mandatory guideline recommending a lifetime deferral for gay male donors. So, mm. anybody who had ever had sex with another man, or any man who had ever had sex with another man, can't, can't donate. Out. Yeah. Oh, and these early guidelines also included women who had had sex with a man who had had sex with another man. Uh. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> um, and transgender women were seen as... Uh, genetically male, so they also fell into that category. So then, jump forward many years, December 2015, the FDA changed the limitations so any man who had had sexual contact with a man in the past year could not donate. The update was based on improved testing methods for HIV, which shortened the window for being able to detect the virus. Mm -hmm. The FDA also updated their policy to state that male or female gender should be self-identified and self-reported. Okay. And then June 12th, 2016 was the night of the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, Florida, mm -hmm. which struck quite a bit of outrage in the gay community because gay men couldn't go and donate blood after the deadliest mass shooting in modern U.S. history affected a gay nightclub right. during Pride Month. Right. And then in November of 2019, the Red Cross urged the FDA to consider reducing the deferral time for men who have sex with men from 12 to 3 months oh, um, wow. while further options were evaluated for the U.S. So I actually thought for a long time that this was a Red Cross rule. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I owe the Red Cross a huge apology. <laughs> this is just the U.S. government being a bunch of a-holes. <laughs> but yeah, because most, like when you're in high school, all of the blood donations that get run through the high school are always through the Red Cross. Mm -hmm. And so I always thought that this was a rule that the Red Cross put in place, but the Red Cross has yeah, actually been a huge advocate for the LGBT community. I didn't know that at all. I thought it was Red Cross rules. Because I think I got the question where it was like, are you a man who has had sex with other men? And I was like, well, no. <laughs> no, because I am not a man. I am, in fact, a 15-year-old girl. <laughs> <laughs> So then, this is super exciting. So, April 2nd, 2020, so, like... Oh, that was recent. Yeah, very few very days recent. ago. <laughs> very few days ago, uh, the FDA lowered the waiting period for gay and bisexual men to donate from one year to three months since wow. their last sexual encounter with another man. Wow. Yeah. Um, so this happened in response to the COVID-19 pandemic mm -hmm. and uh, drastic drops in supply. This is the same policy that is in place in Great Britain and Canada. So we're catching up. We're catching up. It's still kind of like, so if you are a man you have a male partner. Yeah. And you're monogamous, you're still kind of like. <laughs> yeah. Like if you're married. <laughs> yeah, right. And that's the thing is if you're having, if you're regularly tested and you're having. Right. You're only having sex with one person, then. Which I'll, I'll get into some of the reasons why the current guidelines are absurd, but right. the new guidelines are also set to stay in place after the pandemic ends. So well, these are good. the new standards. Um, Doing something, at least. Yeah, so the American Red Cross had a statement up on their website when I initially read about this. So that statement reads, The American Red Cross is pleased with the change as an important first step toward our greater goal of an inclusive and equitable blood donation process that treats all potential donors with equality and respect and ensures a safe, sufficient blood supply is readily available for patients in need. So again, Red Cross, I apologize. <laughs> You're lovely. So, here's the thing with the even the current policy. Every unit of blood that's donated is tested by the FDA for HIV. Wait, it's tested anyway? Yeah. Every single unit of blood. Um, wait, wait. 
is, if it's all tested. Yeah, it's tested for HIV, among many other viruses that could right. also be in blood. Yeah, that makes, if you're going to test, it's not even a, like, oh, we got to save co- save on cost of testing. If you're going to test it anyway, what does it matter? If- yeah, it all goes through extremely rigorous testing. So, despite the testing, um, a small amount of infected samples make it through, but that's not just for HIV. That's for all right. viruses. Right. Um, so, one in every 3.1 million units of blood infected with HIV make it past the screening process. You know... I, here's the thing, is if you're weighing the odds at that point, the other 3.1 million lives that you're saving right. with these units of blood, I mean, I'm not saying, okay, I, I know this is like the poison Skittles thing where if you <sighs> give somebody a bowl of Skittles and you tell them that one's poison, they're not going to eat those Skittles. Right. But also, it's not Skittles. This is life-saving blood. Right. <sighs> and other viruses are going to get passed anyway. I don't know. I feel like I'm kind of and playing devil's advocate. No, I'm no. I think if yeah. I can see the concern where like if more people who are maybe a risk factor start donating blood and it's like more is going to make it through marginally, but if you're regularly being tested or yeah. you're monogamous with your partner and yeah. they're being tested and you're being uh, Yeah. So current HIV tests can detect the virus within 11 days after infection. <laughs> and, like, that's pretty, like, if you're having sex with a partner on a regular basis, but you know you want to donate blood, you could be like, well, for these 11 days, <laughs> yeah, we're not going to have sex, and then I'm going to go get tested, and then I can go donate blood. Right. That makes way more sense than putting an arbitrary number on it, like a three-month waiting period. Right. Because why? And then... The donor screenings also make no mention of safe sex. So, like, no question of if you're using a condom. Right. It should, yeah, what? It should really say, like, unprotected. Yeah. Which should also be a big factor. So, it, I am not going to bash the FDA too hard because moving it down to three months is a huge step right. forward. Um, but I also, like, they could probably cut that back. <laughs> I understand. So, if you run it, want to be super duper safe, cut it down to a 14-day waiting period. Cut it down to two weeks, because then that's past the 11-day mark. Right. If somebody's infected, then it's going to show up on the blood screening when you're screening all the units Mm -hmm. of blood anyway. But it just, it seems very silly. Yeah, it really does. That is, that's all I have. Oh my goodness. So, we got to do our end segment. We do. This week, it is my turn to tell Ashley some riveting stories for our end segment, which has no name. Yeah, y'all gotta give us some names. We don't want a name that includes the word mansplaining. We don't like the word mansplaining. We don't. Uh, <laughs> we love, I love the word mansplaining, but I feel like it's pretty exclusive and we don't, we don't want to be a man bashing feminist podcast. Right. Yeah, that's not our mission. We no. want to be more inclusive. We want to um, be more inclusive. I personally like fan mail. Uh, sp- spelled M A L E, but that doesn't really carry through. Yeah, I also <laughs> I also liked uh, Y chromosome spelled W H Y Y chromosome, but again, audio format. So I've got some Y chromosome <laughs> coming from a 1953 Ladies Home Journal oh, edition, um, and the title, which thank you, uh, University of Michigan, for digitizing your literary collection. It, I just, I want to state, normally University of Michigan. We don't like them. Oh. <laughs> but I do like their, that they had some poor intern scan pages and pages yeah. of Ladies Home <laughs> Journal. So this article, so it's a little, it was taking a different 
approach to the stories. Um, this article is titled Making Marriage Work by Clifford R. Adams, who apparently has a PhD from, it says PhD Pennsylvania State College Department of Psychology. So he's a psychologist, so he knows what he's talking about, Ashley. Oh. It's really important. Um, so I'm just going to read this to you. Okay. And I'm excited to make commentary. So it's uh, Making Marriage Work. Be well-mannered with men. It will astonish some and delight all. <laughs> This, the first little paragraph is titled, A Single Standard for Courtesy. Many a girl has a special set of manners for dates, respectful and polite to her elders, reasonably considerate of other girls, and conscious of niceties in most situations. She completely reverses her behavior when with a man she has attracted or hopes to attract. If Mary is delayed in meeting another girl for a movie, she expects to apologize. Yet she purposely keeps a man waiting half an hour or more, lest she appear overeager. When Joan lunches with a girl of little means, she suggests a modest restaurant, even though they are going Dutch. Yet on a dinner date with a man, she regards any but a pretentious place as an affront to her. So it's very like, <laughs> this guy, <laughs> who have you been dating? Oh my god, Cliff, yeah. who hurt you? <laughs> if you're not taking me to a Michelin star restaurant on the first date, who are you? What Get are you out. Doing? <laughs> Immediately. I have never dated anyone who could afford to take me to, like, fancy dinners. Yeah, I don't... Maybe this is, like, a time thing. Uh, he goes on to say... (laughs) Just kind of tell... It's a lot of telling girls... Girls how to act with men. An extremely popular girl may may get away with such behavior while she is single. Being greatly in demand, she can continue to be rude, inconsiderate, and high-handed, and still get plenty of dates, but her tactics and the attitudes they foster are a serious handicap to her chances of happiness and marriage. For most girls, bad dating manners are also a handicap in attracting dates, or a, desire- or a desirable husband. Unfortunately, some girls cultivate such behavior in the belief that it is an aid to or a mark of popularity. Others confuse common courtesy toward men with a with pursuit tactics they fear that if they are polite a man will assume he is being chased and i don't understand clifford (laughs) no man goes on a date to be made uncomfortable to be inconvenienced or belittled or to be exploited financially (laughs) that's the only reason to date men is to exploit them financially absolutely (laughs) exploit their resources There is little satisfaction trying to please someone whose behavior suggests complete indifference to him. Yet indifference is exactly the impression bad dating manners create. And then there is a bullet point list of, I guess, advice that Clifford has for single women. Thank you, Clifford. I need this. Don't keep him waiting. To do so is to bolster your vanity at the expense of his self-respect and lengthening the evening accordingly at the other end is a real imposition. Don't break dates. Like, some of these, it's like, yeah, I mean, that's good. Like, don't. Be, don't leave him hanging. Like, yeah. Text him back, I guess. <laughs> Modern context. Uh, don't break dates. Uh, don't use him as insurance. So, like, keeping him on the line. Uh, don't demand constant attentions. So then he goes on to... Ha- there's this story about husbands who live away from home. And it's how you shouldn't be upset that your husband needs alone time. <laughs> They're like, don't be clingy, Margaret. (laughs) So there's a lot of that. But then um, what I really wanted to read to you is this quiz called How Irritable Are You? 
in the same article. Oh, lovely. Uh, so, how irritable are you? Ability to get along with people of either sex depends a great deal upon your own feelings and how they are affected by what others say and do. Answer yes to each question for which you think the answer is, tr is true half or more of the time. So, we're gonna, I'm gonna have you take this with. I okay. took it. Should I, should I procure um, something to keep tally? I guess I can just count. Yeah, there's 14. Okay, I can just, there, yeah. I know sign language numbers, I got this. <laughs> Number one, are you grouchy early in the morning? Yes. <laughs> Two, <laughs> Two, do you lose your temper easily? No. Three, are you somewhat on the impatient side? Yes. So far I've said yes to all of them for myself. <laughs> do you raise your voice when arguing? Yes. Also yes. Does it usually annoy you too? Be interrupted while talking? Yes. Have somebody read over your shoulder? Yes. Be held up by a stoplight? What? Is it, does it annoy me? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it annoys me, but I'm not going to, like, sit there and lay on the horn and stuff. I want to fly, pedal to the metal down the I'm gonna street. I'm going to say no to that one. Yeah, that's fair. Does it annoy you to have someone jostle you when passing? Yes. Be kept waiting past the appointed time? Yeah. Have somebody step ahead in line? Yeah. Be corrected when you make a mistake? No. Have a visitor stay past your bedtime? <laughs> yes as, get out of my house as, a, as an actual 90 year old woman <laughs> i want to go to bed bedtime was so long ago um be hurried when you are already hurrying yes enter a store and be kept waiting enter a store and... i don't know what that means what? i'm gonna like, go with waiting no. in line i or i guess like waiting for assistance but then i just go like flag somebody down I'm, right like, uh, so then he says, if yes answers total eight or nine, your score is average. I think I had yes to almost all of them. Yeah. A score of six or less suggests that people take advantage of your good nature. With a score of ten or more, you may be too irritable to make or hold friends easily. Try to be less temperamental and more tolerant. <laughs> Darn, Hannah, we are not going to make friends easily. <laughs> no! Yeah, I answered yes to most of most those. Most of them. Yeah, I can't remember. Let me see. I like to think I don't else. lose my temper easily. I think that was the only one that I was like, uh. But, like, maybe I do. I get, I guess I get irritated easily. I feel like I think of losing my temper as, like, yelling. Right. So that's pretty much all I had. The rest of it is just a lot of Clifford. Yeah, that's fair. Telling about. Um, well, thanks, Cliff, Thank for letting you, me Cliff. know. That Clifford. I am too irritable to make friends. <laughs> to make marriage work, apparently. And he doesn't really say, like, making marriage. It's more like making dating in the yeah. 1950s work. But So, uh... That's what I got. At Zane, who is my partner. <laughs> uh, you can't... Uh, apparently, we're never gonna be... <laughs> I, he might as well just give up on me now. It's never gonna happen. I'm too irritable. Kenton already knew that I am. <laughs> Fair. Um, well, that's what I got. Yeah, that's what we got for this episode. Thanks for listening. This yeah. is probably going to be a long one, so if you made it this far, I appreciate Thank you. You. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Feminators Podcast and on Twitter at FemPodcast. Uh, you can also find links, sources, all that good stuff, as well as a contact form if you want to email us at feminarrativespodc.wixsite.com slash my site um google podcasts apple podcasts stitcher spotify. spotify you're probably listening on spotify yeah i think that's about it thanks yeah. for listening to episode episode two next week it is hannah's turn again yes. 
420. Some. Yeah, we're releasing on 420, so Hannah's got some exciting, exciting stuff in store. <laughs> uh, hope y'all had a good Easter, if that's something you celebrate. Uh, spring celebration is what we call it in this house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Uh, here, you'll here, hear us. Hear us next week. <laughs>